Matthew 11, verse 28, and read down through verse 30. Matthew 11, verse 28. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Well, I appreciated a number of the things that have been shared this morning and even some of the songs because it really goes along well with what I would like to share. Um, And I want to talk today to the weary, to those here who are weary. And to do that, I want to speak first to the lost, to the unbeliever who is weary and burdened. And then second, I want to look at this passage through the lens of for the believer, for the Christian who is weary, going through trials. So to begin with, I want to start by speaking to the lost here. And really, this, is, this should be some encouragement for all of us, even though the exhortation is specifically to the lost. So here Jesus gives an invitation, a call to come to him. And in looking at this, we need to ask, who is this call to? Who is it that Jesus is addressing? And we see here that he is addressing all who are weary and heavy laden. So what is it that would weary a person or cause them to be heavy laden? Well, a person could think of countless number of things that would cause them to feel weighed down or weary. Um, And again, I'm speaking here of a lost person. You may think you're weary from uh, a tough job or poor health. You may feel weighed down because of financial burdens or maybe a rough home life. Uh, You may feel burdened, weighed down with difficult friends or difficult family. Uh, Maybe the busyness of life just seems to be pressing in on you. And the list could go on and on and on. But is that what's really weighing you down? Ask this question. If every one of those problems were miraculously fixed in an instant, would you be able to go to sleep at night with complete peace, without a care on your mind? If all the physical burdens that you feel were immediately taken away, would you really have peace? No doubt there would be a period of excitement and relief of the fact that these burdens have been taken away, but would that last? Would it last if everything was taken away in a moment? The discomfort would eventually return. Some new trial, some new burden would begin to occupy your mind. There would be turmoil and unrest in your heart once again. And why is that? Because your biggest problem and need has nothing to do with your outward circumstances. Your biggest problem is that you're not right with God. If you were in a position that, in a sense, you could do anything you wanted to in this life, if you were a multimillionaire living the life of luxury and I see that, I want it, I get it, because I've got the money, I've got the power, I've got the ability. If you had all that, 
and were still not right with God, again, when you go to bed at night, would there be peace in your heart? Someday you're going to stand before God, and that thought would haunt you. You would not be at complete peace with him. No amount of money, no amount of comfort, no amount of ease is ever going to satisfy the burden that a lost person has. So what does a person do who has some sense that they are not right with God? Well, usually the first thing they do is they try to produce righteousness on their own. They begin looking, what can I do to make myself acceptable to God? They try to balance the scales by doing more good works. But with every effort and attempt, the weight of sin just keeps getting heavier. You try to do more good and you feel more weighed down. You will not be free from the burden of sin by doing good works. In Romans 3 verse 20 it says, Because by the works of the law no flesh will be justified in his sight, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. No flesh is going to be justified. No one will be justified by trying to keep the law. You will not be free from the burden of sin by drowning out the conviction in your heart with pleasure and comfort or distraction. And that's all it really is. When you see people just living for the pleasures of this life, they're not ultimately getting satisfied in that. They're just drowning out the voice of their conscience for a little while longer. A little more fun, just a little more to drown out that voice in their mind. In Ecclesiastes, Solomon says, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves abundance with its income. This, too, is vanity. So the very thing you love, he who loves wealth, will not be satisfied with it. You love it, but it doesn't satisfy. It just distracts you for a little while. It may take your mind off of God for a while, but what about when you're laying in bed at night about to fall asleep? Does your money satisfy you then when your conscience is weighing down on you? Or what about when the doctor tells you that you have a short time to live and to get your affairs in order? Does all the pleasure, all the money, all the distraction, does that satisfy you? Or even your good works? Is that a good soft pillow to lay your head on as you're on your deathbed, all your good works? If this in any way describes you, this is a call to you. Are you weary and heavy laden from sin? Is your conscience bothering you about sin? And to illustrate this, we really can't find a better example than Bunyan here in Pilgrim's Progress. And so I wanted to read just uh, a brief section here from Pilgrim's Progress. So this is speaking of Pilgrim or Christian. It says, In his right hand he held a little black book, and upon his back he bore a huge burden, a great big black bundle of a burden that looked as if it must shortly press him down to the ground. "'Twas a very mysterious burden that he carried, for as large and heavy as it looked to me, I soon perceived that it was invisible to those about him. But you can be sure that it was quite real to him. I, just as real to him as the burdens of your soul, are real to you. 
Now as I beheld in my dream, I saw him open the book and read, and as he read, he began to weep and tremble. He bowed lower and lower, as if his weighty burden was somehow growing even heavier. Finally, unable to endure any longer, he cried out with the most mournful voice I have ever heard, saying, Oh, alas, woe is me, woe, 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 is there no one to help me? And then he goes on to explain how he goes home under this burden, this weight, and he opens up to his wife and his children and shares with them, and they do not see it. Literally, they don't see the burden, but they think he's crazy. And it says this, Now at these words, his family was put into a state of shock. Not that they believed that what he had told them was true, mind you. Oh, no, certainly not but rather because they conceived that he had gone stark raving mad. Therefore, since it was getting on toward evening, they served him a spot of hot tea with a touch of lemon and honey, wrapped his neck with a heavy gray woolen rag, and bundled him off to bed. There, said his wife as she latched the door quietly behind her, a good night's sleep ought to settle his brains a bit. So here he's under the weight of sin, and she does what any good wife or mother would do to someone who's sick. Give them a little tea, wrap them up, put them to bed, close the door. But what happens next? But the night was just as troublesome to him as the day. Therefore, instead of sleeping peacefully, he tossed to his left and cried out, Ah, woe is me, lost and undone am I, all lost and undone. Then there would be sighs and tears as he rolled onto his right, moaning, Ah, what shall become of me, wicked man that I am? And so he spent the long, lingering hours of darkness. So what a, what a good picture that is of the person who's under the weight of sin. There's nothing that you can do to satisfy that. Going to bed, having, being with your family, you lay down and the burden is still there. You toss from one side to the other. The weight just presses down upon you. So that is who the call is to, to those who are weary and heavy laden. What is the call? Well, the call is come. Jesus says come. Not go, be a better person, not go some, uh, follow some checklist of rules and regulations. Jesus does not send a weary, burdened sinner away. He bids them to come to himself. Satan will try to send you a million other places away from Christ, but every one of them will leave you just as weary and heavy laden as you were, or worse, you'll be under a heavier burden because Satan is trying to keep you away from Christ. Jesus bids you, come, come to me. Well, what are we to do when we come? Jesus says in Matthew here, take my yoke upon you. Well, this is language that we don't necessarily use much in these days. Uh, What is a yoke? And I looked up the dictionary definition of a yoke. A yoke is a wooden cross piece that is fastened over the necks of two animals and attached to the plow or cart that they are to pull. And you can find all kinds of pictures of them online of just the yoke or a yoke on the oxen, and many of you have probably seen that. But it also, the word is used to describe subjection and servitude, and it kind of makes sense. You know, here we've got oxen. They're, your, in a sense, your servant, your slave. You yoke them, and they do what you bid them to. 
Well, this is not exactly what a person who is under a heavy burden wants to hear. Are you weary and heavy laden? Here, put on this yoke. Isn't that just going from one bondage to another? I'm feeling under the bondage of sin, and you're saying, come, put this yoke on my neck. But notice that Jesus says to put his yoke on you. Not just go get enslaved into something else, but come, put my yoke upon you. And in thinking about this, um, I, I think there's two ways that we can look at, at this, uh, this section here in Matthew. And I do believe that one is probably more true to the, the passage, but I feel like there's some, uh, some things that we can glean from these two different viewpoints on this. So I'm going to share them both with you, and I trust we can learn something from it, but I will stress that I think the second point is more true to the passage. So when Jesus says, take my yoke upon you, what is he meaning by that? Well, first, he might be saying to come under a yoke with him. After all, a yoke is usually put upon two animals, not just one. You yoke two oxen together. So could Jesus be saying to come yoke yourself with him? Come yoke yourself with me, Jesus is saying. If so... This is a wonderful call. This is similar uh, to what Paul says in Romans chapter 7, verse 4. Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ so that you might be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. So what Paul is saying is you died to the law, to all the requirements of the law. You died to that so that you might be joined to another. Well, who is this another? To him who was raised from the dead. Well, who is that speaking of? That's clearly speaking of Christ. You, were, you died to the law so that you might be joined to Christ. Well, who better to be joined to, to be yoked with, than the one who created the heavens and the earth and knows our frame that we are but dust? Who better to be yoked to than the one who died in my place and took my sins upon himself? Who better to be yoked to than the one who lived a perfect life and is completely accepted by the Father? If you're weary and heavy laden from sin, come to Christ and be yoked to him, be yoked with him. He will bear your burden. He will carry you. So that's one way of looking at this, that you're being yoked with Christ. In other words, you're on one side of the yoke and he's on the other. But a second way, and I think this might be a little more true to the passage, he might be saying to take his yoke in the same way that a farmer might describe a yoke that he possesses. So a farmer might say, that's my yoke there. Well, he doesn't put it on his own neck, but he owns it, and he puts it on his oxen. Now, this may not sound as appealing as the first possibility, but I think as we look at this, we'll see that it is still an amazing thought. If you're going to go under a yoke, you should know about the master that you will be in subjection to. If you're going to put yourself into servitude, who are you going to be serving? You should know about who you're going to serve. Well, what do we know of Christ? And I think one of the clearest, at least to me, the clearest 
um, descriptions of the character of Christ, I feel, can be found in Philippians chapter 2. So why don't we turn there? Philippians chapter 2, and we'll begin reading in verse 3. And this is Paul speaking. And he begins this section. These first two verses are an exhortation to us. But then he follows it up with an example. In other words, Paul gives us an exhortation and then says, here's what it looks like. And he points to Christ. So verse 3, Philippians 2, verse 3. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. But with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So what a, what a picture that is. Paul exhorts us, don't just look out for your own interests. Regard one another as more important than yourselves. In other words, lay your lives down for one another. Well, Paul, give me that in, in an example. Give me a fleshed-out version of that. Well, who does Paul immediately turn to? Have this attitude which was in Christ. He points back to Christ. And then look at the word there in verse 7. Taking, speaking of Christ, taking the form of a bondservant. What a picture that is. Here, Christ, the ruler of the universe, comes down as a man and puts himself in a position where he's a bondservant. In a sense, Christ comes down and enters into that yoke, under that servitude. And uh, again, he humbled himself there in verse 8 by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This is the master. This is the ruler that you're subjecting yourself to. Christ took our sin upon himself and bore the wrath of God in our place. He died so that we could live. He lived a perfect life so that his righteousness could be credited to our account. And he did all this while we were still his enemies. Romans 5 verse 8 says, But God demonstrates his own love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So what this is not subjecting yourself to some cruel slave master. If you see what Christ is revealed in the scriptures, you see that this is submitting yourself to one who has laid his life down for you, has died so that you might live. We see something else about Christ as we go back uh, to Matthew, uh, back in Matthew 11. He says he is gentle in humble in heart. Think of that word gentle. What a description for the master that you will be in subjection to if you come. He is not a hard taskmaster. In Isaiah 42 it says, A bruised reed he will not break, 
and a dimly burning wick he will not extinguish. Now you can have someone who you wouldn't necessarily say they're ungentle, but they're just kind of not aware of their surroundings. They walk into a room and bump into something, oops, sorry, and that falls over, or they look at something, they don't see the value in it, like a bruised reed. That's not worth anything. It's not worth the time to bring that back. Let's just throw that out. But what is the description of Christ? A bruised reed, he will not, um, a burning wick, he will not extinguish, and a bruised reed, he will not break. What a description of gentleness. And then in Isaiah 40, verse 11, says, Like a shepherd, he will tend his flock. In his arm, he will gather the lambs and carry them in his bosom. He will gently lead the nursing ewes. What a description. And then one more here on this topic of gentleness. You can turn to this if you want. Psalm 103. Um, Psalm 103, starting in verse 8. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. He will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his loving kindness towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. And then these last two verses here especially. Just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he himself knows our frame He is mindful that we are but dust. So again, just the the graciousness of our Lord and the gentleness, the compassion that he shows. He knows our frame. He's mindful that we are but dust. Well, that speaks to gentleness, but this passage in Matthew also speaks of him being humble in heart. And we saw that very clearly uh, there in Philippians 2. The creator of the heavens and earth, God himself, came to earth as a a baby, a helpless baby. God took on flesh. He didn't come in great pomp and grandeur. No, he came as a little child born in a barn, born to a a virgin. And again, I've often thought of this, that we kind of glamorize this whole thing of the, the manger scene. It was nothing glamorous at all. It was pretty awful to think about giving birth in a manger. But then on top of that, I tend to think, well, you know, how low it is of, uh, how humble it is of God to come, not born in a castle, but to be born in uh, a manger. And I think there's, there's some truth to that. But do we realize that even if God had come and been born in a castle, that would have been infinitely humbling himself because he's in heaven. He, he's over the whole universe, and for him to even come in flesh at all is to humble himself. But for our sakes, he comes to a position that we can see as being low and humbles himself to that. He was raised by imperfect parents who sinned every day. Can you imagine that? Here Christ doesn't sin at all, and he's being given commands by his parents who sin. 
And he probably can see it, just like many of you kids can see the faults in your parents, but you yourselves sin too. Christ didn't sin, and here he was raised by imperfect parents. He was taught, now think of this, he was taught by parents and teachers that he created. He created these ones that are now teaching him. Everything about his earthly ministry was wrapped in humility. So this is the master that you are subjecting yourself to. And taking a line from one of uh, Frances Havergill's hymns, she says, I love, I love my master. I will not go out free. If you see Christ in his glory and his beauty, and you see how he has taken your sin and raised you to newness of life, you will want nothing more than to be his servant. This is not some low position to be the servant of Christ. What a privilege it is to be a servant of Christ, to be able to say that you belong to him. So when Jesus says, take my yoke upon you, he is calling you to be his servant. And what a wonderful thing that is. You know, when Kevin Williams was here, I think it was him, he gave that example about if you say, I'm a servant, you know, immediately someone thinks, okay, you're a servant. But what if you say, I'm a servant to the president or I'm a servant to the queen of England? Well, all of a sudden, wow, that's something pretty impressive. Well, that's what you're being called to. You're being called to be a servant to God himself, to Christ, the one who laid his life down for you. This is a wonderful calling. And I love this line from a a song uh, by Michael Card because it, it just encapsulates so much this thought. He says, To be so completely guilty, given over to despair, to look into your judge's face and see a Savior there. And just what a thought. Here the burdened sinner comes before God. And their head is down. They're about to look up into their judge's face. And instead, they lift their gaze up, and they see a father reaching his hand out, saying, Come to me. What a glorious thing. It's not that we have a heavenly father who's beating us down. It's someone who's calling us to himself. Come, be my servant. I will take your load. I will take your burden. Well, what is the result of coming to Christ? And again, we're back in Matthew here. What is the result of coming to him? You will find rest for your soul. What a glorious promise this is. You've been striving under this weight, and you've been looking, how can I be free from this weight? Well, here it is. You can finally have rest, true rest for your soul. You've been trying and vainly attempting to find rest, but have failed at every turn. I try pleasure, it doesn't last. I try uh, good works, and I find myself being further under the guilt and weight of sin. I try to just tune everything out, and it still presses upon me. So what now? Now Jesus says, come to me, and I will give you rest. Well, what does he mean, rest? Now, think about this from the way we oftentimes use the word rest. Think about if you're doing physical labor on a hard job. You're working hard, and you've gotten to the end of your, of your strength, and you say, time out, i got to take a rest here. So you sit down, you get some water, take a little break. 
Or maybe, again, a hard job, a hard day at the office. You look down, wow, I've already been here two hours past closing time. I need to go home and get some rest and then come back tomorrow. That's oftentimes, when we use the word rest, that's oftentimes what we're referring to. Well, is that what Jesus means by rest? Does he mean, I'll let you stop and catch your breath for a little while, and then I'm going to give you this burden back? Well, no, he does not mean that, because in each of the examples that I gave, it wasn't true rest. It was taking a little break from the burden, but then you go right back under the burden. When you stop for a water break, it's not like the concrete keeps getting mixed. It's just getting harder. you got to keep stirring it. So when you take a break, the work, in a sense, is just piling up on you, and you got to get back to it. That is not what Christ is referring to here. Think of it this way. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 2, it says, By the seventh day God completed his work which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done. You see, God rested because he had finished the work. It was done. He could truly rest because in the six previous days he had commanded things and they happened. And his creation was complete. So he could truly set back and rest and look at the finished work. And when he calls us to come to him and promises rest, We can truly rest because he is taking the burden from us. It's not a break. It is a removal of the burden. It is gone. It's over. And um, if I would have read further in Pilgrim's Progress here, as many of you remember, he goes up to the, the foot of the cross there, the heavy burden on his back. And as he's at the foot of the cross, The burden falls off his shoulders, and what happens next? It rolls down the hill, never to be seen again. It's gone. The burden is gone. And, of course, we can't help but think of what Jesus himself said when he was on the cross. He cried out, it is finished. So, again, this, the, the burden, the weight of sin that's pressing upon you, when Jesus says, come to me, he can truly offer rest to you because he paid for it. He completed it. He finished the work. So, that is the encouragement. That's the exhortation to the lost, to come to Christ Come that you might find rest for your soul. Well, I want to switch now and go back and talk to the believer, to the Christian here. And so far, we've primarily been speaking to those who are under the burden of sin. But we have to stop and ask, is the call of Christ to come to him only for the lost? Once we have come and submitted ourselves to him and taken his yoke upon us and we've had the burden of sin removed, what now? Does Christ no longer bid us to come to him? Does he only call the lost to himself? And of course the answer is no. The life of the Christian is a life of continually coming to Christ. We come for forgiveness of sins at conversion And we come every day after needy and broken before him. We keep 
coming to Christ. So I want to go back now and look at this passage in Matthew um, as a call for believers. And I want to look at it as though for the majority of us here who are trusting in Christ about the weariness that we are facing in the encouragement that we can find from this passage. So he calls, Jesus calls the weary and heavy laden. Our sins have been forgiven. We are no longer under the burden and weight of our sin. That has been removed. So what weight, believer, are you under now? What is wearying you? And brethren, I don't need to remind you of all the various burdens that you are probably facing. Um, All of us, if we're honest, have heavy weights that we're under. Some that others know about and many that probably only God knows about. But think with me for a moment of some of the things that we might face. Ongoing struggle with sin, besetting sins, that is a burden. That's a weight that can press upon a believer. Burden for the salvation of your children, that's not an easy burden to be under. Burden for the salvation of your parents, they're getting older. You know they don't have long to live and they're still hardened in their sin. That's a burden. Failing health. It might be failing health uh, for you. You're, you're sick, maybe chronically sick. It's not easy to be sick. Caring for a sick loved one. So maybe it's a child or a parent or a grandparent, and you're, you're laying your life down for them. You want, you want to serve them, but it's a burden. It's a weight to, to be in that position. Maybe it's troubles at work. You've got a lot of work on you, and it's pressing in on you. You feel like I just every time I complete a project, there's five more that pile up. It's, it's hard. Or maybe it's the other extreme where you feel as though I'm staring at my last job here and there's no other jobs lined up. I might get laid off. I might need to look for another job. Or maybe you have... Um, difficulties with your coworkers. It, there can be personnel problems at work that can be hard for the believer. Or maybe your boss, you work for a difficult boss and it can be difficult. It's a burden to you. Those are real trials that a Christian can go through. Maybe relationship difficulties. You might be married to an unbeliever. Or maybe there's, there's troubles in your home and the, the children, the, there's just not right responses there, and it's a burden to you. You're, you struggle with the fact that there's tension between you and the kids, or maybe the kids are gone from home, they're grown, but there's still a wall there. That can be a burden to a believing parent. Raising kids, that right there, just that phrase, raising kids, that's a burden. Um, Maybe you're a mother or a father who hasn't had an uninterrupted night's rest for a couple months or a couple years, or you can't remember the last time you slept all night. Maybe you're weary from switching between roles as mom, homeschool teacher, and wife, and you feel like every moment you turn around, you're some different character in the home, and then you lay down at night, finally, a moment's rest, and then the baby starts crying. Or the kid cries out, hey, mom, I'm thirsty. 11 o'clock at night, I just laid down. Those, I mean, it's kind of comical in some sense, but it's real. You feel it. You're weary. You're tired. It's a burden. 
And maybe it's not just one of these things that's wearing you down, but a culmination of several of these things that I've mentioned. A little bit of this and that in some other trial that none of us know about wears you down. Is there help for you, believer, in the midst of your struggles and your burdens, the weights that you're under? Is there any help for you? And the answer is yes. Jesus says... Come to me. And this is so important for me to remember. Um, And I trust it's important for you as well. Because my tendency is I look at the problem and my first thought is what can I do to fix this problem? I'm a fix-it guy. Here's a problem. What's the solution? Let's get in there and do it. Well, maybe you're, you're burdened. From, and weary from a heavy schedule that you've had, busy at work, busy at home, busy everywhere you turn around. So your first thought is, okay, what are we going to cut out of the schedule this week? Sometimes it is necessary to look at how you can simplify things. That sometimes is prudent and wise to do that. But is that the first place that you turn? Is that the first thing you do when you come up to a problem? What can I do to fix it? And that's a problem that I have is that I'm oftentimes looking to myself for what I can do to fix my own problems rather than coming to Christ. Jesus doesn't say, fix what you can and then come to me and I'll take care of the rest. Jesus um, calls us to come to him. He doesn't leave us to do the best that we can and then give us the remainder of what we need. He says, come to me. And in that call, there is the requirement to give up on our own plans and strategies. We don't come to him with a plan and ask him to make our plan work. Lord, here's what I need for this week. Make it happen. That's not what we do. We come to him confessing our need and submit ourselves to him and to his plan. The part of taking his yoke upon you implies that you are submitting and subjecting yourselves to him. We are no longer in charge. We give all control to him. So believer, when you're under the burdens and the weight, you need to come to Christ, but you also need to come relinquishing every plan that you have and just lay the burdens at his feet and, this is for me, lay my plans at his feet. Give it all to him. First Peter 5 verse 7 says, casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. What a thought, casting it all, not casting everything you couldn't figure out, casting all your anxiety on him. So what then, believer, is the promise if we come? Again, he says, I will give you rest. Well, we see in Scripture that the real rest is coming when we get to heaven. Uh, In this life, we're going to have trials and tribulations, but there is a day coming when every tear will be dried and every burden will be lifted. And that is a wonderful thought but I'll be honest to say it's a little bit discouraging at the same time. And how is it discouraging? Well, think of it this way. Do you mean to tell me that I won't have any rest until I die? Take courage, brother. 
one day you're going to die and then you'll finally have some rest. That seems a little difficult (laughs) for the believer to think about under the weight of their trial. But I think that Christ does offer some hope and some help to us in this life, not just in the life to come. But I do want to make it clear, if we're only looking for help in this life, it is going to be a trial. Constantly in scripture, we're always pointed to the hope that is to come, the life that is to come. And that is a great encouragement to make it through trials. But God is also concerned about his children who are currently in a trial. And so there is some hope, there's some rest that can be found in the midst of your trials. So first, there is rest that comes from finally giving up your burden. And think of going back to that verse I mentioned in 1 Peter, casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. When you do that, believer, when you cast your cares upon him, your burdens upon him. There is some rest that you feel because of the fact that you're no longer claiming those anxious thoughts anymore. You've given it to the Lord. We no longer have to struggle under our burdens if we are truly casting them upon the Lord. Now, I do want to be clear here. When I say that we no longer have to struggle under our burden, I mean we don't have to be anxious and worry about those burdens. I don't mean to imply that you no longer feel your burden. Just because you feel the burden doesn't mean you haven't cast it upon the Lord. But are you anxious? Are you worrying? Is it what occupies your mind all the time, that worrying about whatever issue it is, my job, my finances, or my health, or my wife, and our struggles, or whatever the burden might be, is that always on your mind, or is there a sense in which daily I can cast that upon the Lord, give it to him, and leave my anxious thoughts there? Much of the rest we need can be found by resting from the worries of our burdens, the anxieties of our burdens. But second, what about a little bit of relief from our burdens? You're a weary mother of young children. Will he give you a couple of nights of uninterrupted sleep? Maybe. You're weary from this sickness that you have. Will he heal you and take it away? Again, maybe. That is certainly how we would desire for the Lord to help in the midst of our trials. Lord, deliver me. Take this burden away. But what do we know of the Lord's dealings of his children in the midst of their trials? And for that, let's go to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. And this is Paul speaking of a trial or a burden that he was under. And how he dealt with this burden. So 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7. Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, and I'm jumping in the middle here, Paul had just explained how amazing some of these revelations were, such that he could boast in them. But in order to keep from that, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh 
a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. We don't know exactly what this was, but I think it's fair to assume this was a burden. This was a trial for Paul. Concerning this, I implored the Lord three times that it might leave me. So what does the Lord reply? You got it, Paul. You want it gone? It's gone. No. Verse 9. And he said, and that is God said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Now, this is amazing. Paul says, well, first of all, Christ says that his grace is sufficient for his power. Christ's power is perfected in our weaknesses. Another way of saying that, Christ's power is most glorified, most magnified when it's done through a vessel that is so weak. And Paul says, most gladly, I would boast about my weakness so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. What does that mean, to boast in your weakness? In other words, boast in this burden that I'm under, glory in this burden that I'm under, and dare I even say it, be thankful for this burden that I'm under so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. This is totally different than the way we think. We think the way Paul prayed at the beginning, Lord, deliver, take this burden away from me. Paul prayed it three times. Don't feel bad going to the Lord asking him to deliver you from burdens. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. But we need to be ready. We need to be ready for the response of the Lord, which is oftentimes, my grace is sufficient for you. Christ's ability to miraculously deliver you from your burden is not the question. His ability is not in question. He is all-powerful, and with just a word, he can deliver you. But in many cases, and get this, in many cases, he chooses to display his power by sustaining you through the trial rather than delivering you from the trial. And don't be mistaken, his power is at work in you even if you're left in the middle of the trial. We tend to think along the lines of, man, think of how glorious it would be, how much glory God would receive if he miraculously took me out of that trial or took that burden away. And there would certainly be reason for praising the Lord, but we don't think like God does. He receives much glory from sustaining his children through the midst of the trial that they're in. And I've got a couple of examples here from Scripture. Some, The first one points to more of the miraculous deliverance or the miraculous provision, and the second one to more of the sustaining provision. So the first one, think of the hungry Israelites in the wilderness. There were around a million of them. They have come out of Egypt, and they're walking through the wilderness, and they're hungry. They're hungry for meat in particular, and quite honestly, they're grumbling a lot. But they're asking for meat. So how is the Lord going to provide meat for a million people? We had the young people's gathering this Friday night, and rather than have hamburgers or steaks for just 20 people, we opted to go cheap for hot dogs. But if any of you have ever had a big gathering and thought about just buying hamburger patties, for 50 people, you better take your credit card with you. It gets pretty expensive. It's, meat is expensive. 
It takes a while to cook. It takes a while to butcher it. A million people are hungry for meat. How is God going to provide for them? Well, he sends in quail, and so much quail that it says they eventually became sick of it. They got so sick of it. So we're not talking about just enough for everyone to have a little bit on a toothpick to taste. So much that they got sick of it. That is miraculous provision. You're hungry, God dumps a a flock of quail for a whole nation. Well, what about the other side? Here, think about Jesus in the, uh, with the, those following him. He looks at the multitude that's following him, and he says to his disciples, these people are hungry. We need to find some food for them. And immediately his disciples think like probably most of us would, Lord, there isn't a grocery store around here, and we don't have near enough money to buy food for all these people. And Jesus asks, well, what do we have? A couple of fish and a few loaves. And that's enough. Jesus feeds this vast multitude that they say was 5,000, not counting the women and children, so however many that would be, more than 5,000 people with five loaves and two fish. That is miraculous too. And in many ways, it's more miraculous than this flock of quail coming in. Jesus could have called that same flock of quail to come in for these 5,000. He could have just commanded some sticks or rocks to become bread, and there would have been bread for plenty. But instead, he took the weak and feeble uh, things, the possessions that the disciples had, and he multiplied that so that it didn't run out. And that is power. That's power for God to be able to sustain the provisions that were available so that they did not run out. The same power of God that miraculously feeds the multitude is the same power that caused the widow's oil to not run out. Do you remember that story? Here's this widow, and there's just a little bit of oil left, enough for one more day. And God sustains that oil so that it never runs out. He could have provided vats of oil. He could have said, you know, here's a 50-gallon drum, and there's a 50-gallon drum, and there's more outside. You'll never run out. But instead, every day she went and drew what she thought was her last bit of oil. And the next day she came back, and there was some more. Every day she drew what seemed to be the last bit of oil, and it didn't run out. That is power. Brethren, God is able to take the weak, feeble strength that you have and multiply it so that your strength does not give out in the midst of your trial. Lord, how am I going to make it through this trial? I feel so weak and I'm weary. And what does the Lord reply? In Isaiah 40, he says, He gives strength to the weary. And to him who lacks might, he increases power. Though youths grow weary and tired, and vigorous young men stumble badly, yet those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. So this is the way God deals with us in our time of need. 
He sustains us. He gives us what we need. I love that at the beginning. He gives strength to the weary. To him who lacks might, he increases power. And then there in the middle, he says, Though youths grow weary and tired, and vigorous young men stumble badly. The idea here is that the natural man stumbles and falls. He can't keep going. He even runs out of strength. Pick the strongest man you know, and he's going to give out. But what does God do? Yet those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. In other words, strength that they didn't even know they had. They didn't have it. God gave it to them. No one else can see it, but God gives it to them. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. Now, when I look at this passage, I tend to focus more on the beginning uh, that he gives strength, he gives might, he increases power. And then I kind of look over the last part. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. Oftentimes, we tend to desire, Lord, give me the strength and then just miraculously take me out of the trial or take the trial away. But what seems to be implied is that the believer get, um, the believer has to faithfully trot on, sometimes running, sometimes walking, sometimes crawling, but always being supplied by the strength and power from God. He will give the strength, but you have to keep walking, sometimes running, sometimes walking. You may feel incredibly weak, but the Lord will sustain you. Um, I was thinking of this song that uh, I think it was the first one that we sang this morning, and rivers will flow in the desert. Now, the desert, obviously, is a picture of dry times, dry times for the believer. So what do you desire when you're in dry time? Lord, turn this into the Amazon where there's water abundantly. But what does God oftentimes do in that? He brings a person who's in a desert to a little stream of water, just enough water, grace for them for that moment not necessarily this overpowering downpour, but he finds a way to give you water in the midst of the wilderness, water in the midst of the desert. And we see it all through scripture and in many of the songs, day by day and with each passing moment, strength I find to meet every trial for the rest of my life. No, strength I find to meet my trials here, the trials I have right now. I need strength today, Lord. Now, others may look from the outside and wonder how you're doing it. And the point of it is they should wonder how you're doing it. If they see a big S on your chest and a cape on your back, they're not going to ask, how did you do it? But when they say to this weak sister who has had one trial after another, how do you do it? It's because they see that there's no physical reason why this person should be able to stand up under one trial after another. But that is a good reason for the believer to be able to testify, this is the hope of my calling. What is the source of your strength? Let me tell you the source of my strength. Jesus said, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I have come to Christ he has given me strength for this trial. He's given me the help that I need. 
He has given me rest. That is the source of the strength for the believer. And, again, just a reminder to myself and to all of us, that strength is found not in trying to figure out the solution ourselves. That strength is found by coming to Christ. Come to him. Lay your plans at his feet. Lay your burdens at his feet. Just come to him. Take his yoke upon you, and you will find rest. And that is an encouragement not just to the believer. That's an encouragement and exhortation to all of us. Unbeliever, if you are struggling under the weight of your sin, come to him. Cast your care upon him. Take his yoke upon you. You will find rest. And in closing, um, thought of this verse from Psalm 55. Cast your burden upon the Lord, and he will sustain you. He will carry you, sustain you. He will never allow the righteous to be shaken. What an encouragement. We can cast our cares upon Christ, and he will sustain us. Amen.